Hello, and welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vanderwerf, the I, and I think you're interesting. And this week's guest continues to surprise me. His name is Bo Burnham, and a lot of people came to know him from his YouTube videos way back in the early days of the site. He made funny things online, and he's one of the earliest people to parlay that into an actual career. He's a stand-up comedian, he's an actor, he was in the movie The Big Sick, he even had his own TV show on MTV called Zack Stone is Gonna Be Famous. But now here's what's really interesting about Bo. Earlier this year at Sundance, he released his first feature film. It's called Eighth Grade, and it follows a 13-year-old girl named Kayla as she awkwardly navigates her last week of eighth grade. The film is set in the present, and like most teenagers, Kayla turns to the internet, in her case, YouTube, to express her innermost thoughts, dreams, and fears. Here's a clip. Hey guys, uh, it's Kayla, back with another video. So, the topic of today's video is being yourself. Being yourself can be hard, and it's like, aren't I always being myself? And yeah, for sure. But being yourself is like not changing yourself to impress someone else. Now here's the thing. Bo Burnham, although younger than me, is not a 13-year-old girl, and he never has been. Yet this movie is really insightful and sweet and funny and sometimes cringeworthy. It captures what it's like to be this specific 8th grader, but also what's universal about the adolescent experience and what it's like to be a teenager in 2018 with technology and social media surrounding you all the time. Bo and I talked about his career, growing up online, and depicting the reality of the internet on screen, which is not always easy to do. He's one of the most thoughtful directors I've talked to about that very question. So stick around for my conversation with Bo Burnham. Bo, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Todd. I appreciate it. So uh, just kind of as we get into it, you know, maybe people who haven't seen 8th Grade want to know, just kind of give me a sense of, of what this movie's about and, you know, what it means to you now. The movie's about... Kayla, a 13-year-old girl in her last week of eighth grade, sort of navigating those days. And hopefully it sounds like not a big deal, but it feels like a big deal, which is what sort of that age is. This is your first feature film. You've directed other stuff, which uh, some comedy specials and some some other things. And of course, you've made short videos, short-form videos on YouTube and other places. But this is your first feature what has been kind of the wildest thing about this experience? Now, this is kind of the tail end of it. So what, what's been the wildest and, and most uh, surprising thing about it? Um, well, you know, making the film was obviously like incredible and that was everything I hoped it would be and more and terrifying and exciting. And I mean, the release of the film has been insane. You know, um, I've been making things for 10 years and I don't know, it feels like the first thing that's like kind of been talked about in a certain sphere, I guess. I don't know. I, yeah. didn't, I never sort of thought that I would make it there. Yeah. <laughs> so it was strange, but but nice. And I don't know. I'm, I'm not in a position to process it. I hope that's never my job to process my own experience. <laughs> that is kind of a nice lead into, this is a movie about a teenager. It's, it deals with some pretty universal things like all teenagers go through, but it is specifically about a teenage girl. And I know you've been asked this question mm. a million times, but did that give you sort of the distance to step away from 13-year-old you in a way? I think so. I think, that, I mean, that that definitely was in hindsight why I think that probably ended up being that way. I, I had no interest in my own eighth grade experience. I mean, my eighth grade experience was not significant to me. I don't really care about it. Mm-hmm. I never really thought about it. Uh, another one was that I I sort of had a weird professional connection to girls of that generation, of that age, for a while where it was just like they were the ones that, most connected to the stuff I was talking about in my stand-up. 
I think probably my anxiety, which I wanted to talk about. I mean, it's just very anecdotal or or whatever, but I've connected to women about my anxiety way more than I have men. Yeah, so I don't know. I think maybe the anxiety I have is shared more commonly by women than men or something. But certainly that age, the girls are asking deeper questions of themselves for, for whatever reason, whether they – whether inherently and in, at that time girls are just like getting a little deeper than boys or I think also just culturally we ask much deeper questions of girls for them to like have a command of their own narrative. I think boys are asked at that age, what do you like? And and girls are asked, who are you? Yeah. You know, so that was just much more interesting to me. I get a number of emails from teenagers who want to be critics or journalists or something, and I, I never know what to say to them. When you have that sort of encounter with a young fan, like how do you handle that? Like what what, what is your – do you have like go-to or, or how do you sort of connect to somebody, you know? Well, you know, I was a young person making things and if you're asking for what advice do I give, it's like it's just advice I'd give myself all the time, which is give yourself permission to enjoy it. Kids will come up to me and be like, I'm an aspiring aspiring writer or I'm an aspiring actor. And it's like, do you act? Hmm. Do you write? You're a writer. You're an actor. You know, don't wait until you have some arbitrary version of success to allow yourself to – permission to enjoy it. Because probably by the time, if you're lucky enough to achieve that arbitrary form of success, it'll be very hard to enjoy it because it's probably the hardest time to enjoy those things. So like, I don't know. I think there's a lot in the way of young people trying to be creative right now. I mean, there's a, an infinite amount of ways for them to express themselves, but the the process of enjoying the creative process is is tough right now Yeah, for me. So I just tell them, you know, I'm in it with you and and I'm trying to figure it out as well. How do you find that emotional emotional connection even when you're like, you know? Twice their age. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, just to believe it. I mean, part of the reason why I felt like I could write this story of a young girl, which I knew on the surface I was a man writing about a young girl. and wh- who, the, who am I to do this? And I, I can't really understand her. Part of me was also I can understand her. Part of what kids are struggling with is, yeah, they're kids and they're being kids and they have little kid brains. But part of what they're struggling with is like the human condition. I do believe that, that like they do just have access to the thing that they're going to struggle with for the rest of their life. So part of it is just believing them, believing that they are equal to you in some way and trying to see them eye to eye. I mean, that's what I was hungry for at that age, eye to eye relationships. And when I was sort of coming up in the industry or whatever, the the, the relationships and advice that I appreciated the most or were relationships and advice – that treated me like an equal or like an adult and not like, you know, taking you under your wing and I'll show you the ropes because the ropes are changing every day. I mean, who knows what's going on right now? Who knows how to work in the world right now? So yeah, part of it is just trying to go to the kids and go like, these feelings of struggle and confusion you're having are actually shared by an entire country and culture right now. So like, you're good, you know, just like, Trying to alleviate, I think, the feelings of loneliness and isolation. I think that's what's most most corrosive. They'll figure out how to do stuff. But feelings of inadequacy, feelings of I'm a phony and a fake, just letting them know like everyone has those feelings. So don't worry and just keep going. The movie's been written about a lot as like one of the first real documents of this sort of digital generation, kids who are have been on phones since they were seven or eight, mm-hmm. you know, and just know it like a second language. And yet, like, all of its experiences are so universal. Like, we've all, like, had a crush on somebody who mm-hmm. didn't notice we existed, all of yeah, these yeah, things. Yeah. So, like, what what is fundamentally the same about being a teenager still now? And what has, what has really changed from that presence of tech? Well, yeah, I think what you said is, like, the actual emotions are the same. 
they're just exacerbated. They're just the he- the head and the tail of the experience have just been lengthened and the duration has been lengthened. Like you just wake up with your social life and you go to bed with your social life instead of it just being contained to school. Things are made a lot more literal that weren't literal. There's a number on how liked you are. Um, but the actual feelings of I want to be liked, I want to be seen, who am I to myself, who am I to other people, what am I in my own head, what am I when the words come out of my mouth, uh, those things are all the same. And I think those are pretty universal. So it's just like the duration, the context, and the and the intensity of the feelings. I just feel like being a kid now is like being a, is all those emotions on steroids. All of those emotions just just more dense, denser, brighter, yeah, crazier. And now that you mention it, I'm thinking about how like literally one of the first things we see of Kayla is she wakes up in the morning and looks at her phone, and she goes to mm. bed and looks at her phone, and mm-hmm. like that's what I do. Yeah, me too. And like um, I I pull up Twitter because I'm an idiot. Mm, um, me too. And just feel rotten about how the day's going to go. Mm, mm. Um, so that is like that is kind of an interesting thing that I think you you've captured that I haven't seen in a lot of other movies. But sort of the flip side of that is looking at your phone cinematically, not very exciting. So Mm. how did you come up with ways to depict that reality without like just boring the audience? I don't know. I mean, I found it always cinematic. I didn't really understand the sort of phobia for it. Like it's a light source, like Barry Lyndon writing a letter by candlelight is the most cinematic thing in the world, but like a girl on her phone in the dark, which literally is the candle and the letter are fused and – now the cool light of the moon that's outside of the window for Barry Lyndon. I don't know why I'm har- harping on Barry Lyndon. I Barry love Lyndon, that movie. Yeah. It's like, you know, it's the warm orange glow of the candle over the letter and the cool, cold light of the moon out the window. And now it's the cool, cold light of the phone in your hand and the warm yellow light of your dad in the hallway, you know? So – for me, a, a character looking into a light source practically is exciting. Like, right. oh my gosh, like, oh, you, they're looking into lights. That's per, that's perfectly cinematic. So, and I'd be like in bed with my girlfriend and look over in the dark and, you know, her on her phone in the dark, which I'm not saying she's uniquely on the phone in her dark. I, I just couldn't see myself when I was on it, but it's a surreal image staring into that phone. And the look on your face is, is there's nothing comparable to the way you look when you're looking at a phone. Or, or looking at the internet. So that was something we tested, me and my DP, we tested before we even had money for the movie. Like, how do we film screens practically? We wanted to film them practically. For me, the stupid thing is like, I hate like when people are tweeting in movies and the tweet like shows up yeah. superimposed. That, mm-hmm. That's when it gets like corny and weird to me. It's the equivalent of like someone reading a newspaper and you mean the letters like typed out in front of it or something. So, and like a close up of a shattered phone to me looks like gorgeous. You know, it looks like very interesting and cool. So there have been movies that have done it well. Like I, Social Network, I thought did it pretty well or really well, but it, in a different way. It's sort of that he's doing like those very cold, still close ups. Or or even in the um, in the trailer for that movie, one of the like abstract trailers I think was uh, to Creep. And you saw like the close-ups of the pixelated images of profile pictures on a computer screen. And you realize like the significance of the pixeled image and what that means. Mm-hmm. And and it also has something to do with digital filmmaking. And we're not using emulsion anymore. And we really are just using little pixels. And is there a sort of pointillism equivalent for film mm-hmm. in digital stuff next to, uh, you know, the more watercolory way that 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 film – actual real film stock does. So I don't know. It was all cool and interesting and and interesting to me and significant to me. I think probably it's uncinematic to people that maybe don't 
view it emotionally. I, I think that's probably what it is. Like right. phones mean something to to me. Great. I liked hearing you say that because I've sort of absorbed from reading, you know, screenwriters say, my God, cell phones have just killed, you know, like all yeah. the drama. I've yeah, sort of yeah, absorbed yeah. this idea that phones are uncinematic. But one of my favorite shots of the last few years is um, Amy Simon's star series, uh, The Girlfriend Experience. Oh, yeah. In the I've, first heard, season, I've heard about that. In the first movie. season of that, like there is a shot where the two women at the center of the show are sitting in the backseat of an Uber and like just looking at their phones. And they're sort of – they sort of look like ghosts. And mm-hmm. it's so beautiful. And like yeah. – I, and I do think that one of the things eighth grade does well is it captures um, through editing that feeling too, like the um, sort of quick cut montages of Kayla hitting like on a bunch of Instagram mm. photos and like begging to be liked back in yeah. some ways. Tell me about approaching that idea of editing the online experience. Part of the world outside of her phone is it was sort of def- – it's defined by the restrictions of the phone. So the internet and what things are on a screen are quick cut uh, – what's the word? whatever, not in order or like, you know what I mean? Non-linear? Yeah, yeah, non-linear, like mm-hmm. discontinuous, whatever it is. Like sure. um, all that and flat, mm-hmm. a flat screen. That's what they are. So like part of the movie was trying to inter- balance the real world with that and play against the real world, have the real world world play against the, what would be the quote unquote cinematic language of a phone, which would be in theory, flat, so really long lenses in theory and quick cuts, you know, so then when we're out in the world, we're going wider and we're cutting less. So you feel like, oh, look at all of these moments that the internet would cut out or look at, you know, this shot that would be too long to post on a Instagram, you know what I mean? Because it's over a minute long or something. And that's part of it. And that's actually part of my issue. I'm like, totally not answering your question. No, probably this, is fine. Five, this but, is but fine. Like, this is great. Um, that is sort of my issue with a lot of things, media that tries to tackle the internet, they try to tackle the internet on the internet's terms. And it feels like big, flashy, quick, cutty, satirical stuff. And to me, like, that's just satirizing the internet on the internet's terms when it feels like we're going to take down the internet by making like a meme movie that's really quick cut and moving. And and, and I wanted to, it's not that that stuff can't work, but I wanted to do a movie about the internet that sort of, I guess, existed. And this is why it's answering the editing question exists sort of in opposition to the aesthetics of the internet, which are silence and maybe a a little bit uh, more room to just sit in a moment. And that, that thing that the movie is trying to reconcile, I think is a thing that we are forced to reconcile in our own lives, which is stressful that like we have this hyper, hyper, I'm, I'm holding up my phone, this hyper, hyper paced, stimulative thing and then our lives are not that they really aren't that and that's hard for us that's why it's so hard to be bored and not do things and especially when you're a kid like how the hell do you sit through history class when you have the internet in your pocket yeah i I have no idea yeah yeah i could barely sit through the internet with my like chunky nokia phone and like snake on it (laughs) like i could barely reconcile those two things i i think that you what you describe is like The internet, when you think of it in aggregate, feels overwhelming. And I think that's what a lot of other films and TV shows try to do is tackle that overwhelmingness. Mm, mm, But mm. when you look at a single Instagram photo, a single tweet, a single Facebook post, that feels very like approachable and human in a weird way. It's just that then you get hit with an onslaught of them. And I think that's sort of an interesting dichotomy. Yeah, and I think that 
audience can sort of accumulate those images in their own head to know that she does this every morning, to know she's scrolling through this all the time. But yeah, I mean, the, the hope was just to like try to just look at the internet very granularly and emotionally and personally and subjectively and not in this like big macro term of cyberbullying or or really almost the first rule I was like it'll be meaningful to me if she just doesn't go viral like that's enough, like that's the bar for me almost too just like I want to make a movie about the internet where someone doesn't go viral cuz they always go viral and as someone that went viral it's first of all it's not interesting and second of all it's like it's not the experience of the internet 99.9% of the internet people express themselves in the internet are not being heard and the internet is something like god where it's like some like void that you're calling out to and it might be there and it might not it might answer you it might see you it might not and going viral is like god answering which is not interesting that's like the old testament i'm the i'm the oldest person that really grew up with the internet you right. know and so when you see people my age and younger that's are going to start to be able to express themselves in in film or other mediums i think you'll start to see the internet talked about more emotionally and personally because for me, it, it feels like it's – when I see it talked about, I'm like, oh, this is clearly talked about by someone who doesn't – who sees it as this other thing and right. doesn't actually see it as a part of their life. I, I'm like right around 10 years older than you. Yeah. I'm like I have a memory of the internet coming into my life like as a young teenager and like what that experience was like and yet – it's so vastly different from your own, which is mm. kind of crazy if you think about yeah, it. Yeah, which is which is yeah. so different than the kids yeah. 13 years younger than me. Yeah. And even kids four years younger than me. You know, it's like there's a little like sort of jokey conversation in the movie that hints at it. She's a different generation than us. She's, She's right not a to different generation. Yeah, she is. She's four years younger than us. I mean. Okay, but people who are like four years older than us about like fucking 50 years old. That's like blatantly not Your true. sister? My sister just sucks. Okay, but like on top of that, she didn't have Twitter in middle school, and we did. That made us different. Kayla, you're not different than us. Yeah. When did you get Snapchat? What grade? Fifth grade. Fifth grade. The changes, the generational gaps are shrinking. You know, it's like it's just crazy how different experiences are. we got to find a way, I feel like, to talk about it. And it feels important that it's talked about in film. and Because the Internet's having a conversation about itself. The Internet talks about the Internet. But again, the way in which the Internet speaks is... Uh, it's it's not the same. You know what I'm saying? When you, when you feel something that feels like this is satirizing the internet, but it's actually just the internet and playing into the internet. And the internet is self-satirizing. The internet is constantly making fun of itself and ironic and meta. And yeah. to me, that's no way to tackle it. A lot of the time, the only way to understand the internet is in the context of the rest of the internet. But mm. then, you know, like happens with tweets all the time, they get stripped of that context and you get right. into this weird world of, you know, where something intended for one audience is sent to another audience mm. who gets really mad about yeah, it. Yeah, you know? yeah, 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 right, right, totally. And for, so for me, it's like it really isn't trying to pro – the movie is not trying to process the internet. It's trying to process one kid's subjective experience of being on the internet. The real impact of the internet is the the way it makes us feel in our tummy at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, it isn't just the web pages flying by you. It's like that's the real effect of it, right? And it probably like – Set, set the country on fire a year and a half ago or two years ago, <laughs> wherever it was. Like, yeah. You know what I mean? That, that really felt like the election felt like, oh my God, the internet can, the internet like made its way into the world. Yeah. Oh Lord. Yeah. Um, so. It, it was just nice to see a story where it wasn't, you know, the tool of foreign propagandists, you know, like it is in like every TV show now is. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. It feels like, like, like 
But to me, that's what feels like that's the conversation we're having about the internet. That's the conversation we're having about the internet is like Russia. And it's like it, – it, it's like there's a subtler conversation to be had. I mean the internet – but people see it in these big sort of social sweeping things that – and I really believe that like the main effect of the internet is not geopolitical or is not even interpersonal. It is like personal. The internet first and foremost affects the way you think about yourself mm-hmm. more than even you think about your friends or – about your country or about the world. Let me turn that back on you then. How has the internet changed how you think about yourself? The answer to this is hopefully just the movie and the feeling of the movie more than like, because I really didn't want to give a TED talk and I was feeling like (laughs) I had spent so much time riffing on the internet like in my head or out loud. And I was like, the better answer to this is just a portrait of someone feeling this thing. But the way it's made me feel about myself is like similar to what being a D-list celebrity did to it, which is like, it turned, and that was my realization that like, oh, my experience, my anxieties as a D-list celebrity are actually shared by every kid in the country because the internet has democratized the stresses of being a low level celebrity, which are the final answer, your name as a sort of proper noun. You know what I mean? You have, you have, Bo Burnham, but then you have Bo Burnham in the world. You have a brand. You are your own publicist. You walk through your experiences, but you also float behind yourself like a camera, mm-hmm. following yourself through your own experiences. You're you're sort of out of body all the time. You're disassociated. You're in a situation, but you're already thinking of how that situation is going to be perceived when presented to the world digitally. You're anticipating the backlash to that perception, maybe even before you've even had the experience. Mm-hmm. It's that weird sort of hall of mirrors, strange meta thing that, you know, makes you not want to leave the house, uh, makes you not want to ever open your mouth. And it makes you not embodied, not in yourself, not in your moment, which is very similar to anxiety, which is just, you know, objectifying yourself, objectifying your own experience. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like playing your life like a board game, which, which used to be careerist. You know what I mean? Like I think career was treated like that for a while. I mean, of course, you're going to strategize about your life and your family and your taxes and all this stuff. But, like, now it's literally every social interaction, every opinion you had is now like this – I don't know. It's weird. And I feel like to be a 13-year-old kid and feel that way, to feel like you have a brand and a a narrative and that you're in a movie, everything you do is a quantity to be sold and presented and thought about and attended to even after the fact. Yeah plan a moment to reminisce on that moment. It's crazy, you know, mm-hmm. weird. I think about uh, 20 years ago, my job, I would have like worked at, you know, the Cleveland newspaper and like mm. I would have been there for 40 years and then retired and, you know, whatever. And now like I can be in like a very private moment out somewhere and because my picture's out there, my name's out there, somebody will like come up and be like, I love your Sopranos reviews. And I'll be like, oh dear God, what's yeah. going on? But how, how about for you, like- what reviewing meant at a certain point and now the sort of – I mean I don't, I don't know what you have personally with this. But like the meta conversation online, Twitter, dialogue with an audience, dialogue with fellow critics. Right. Th- that That's like huge mm-hmm. meta levels of discussion that feel like uh, – what you know what I mean? Like – filmmakers being aware of critics, having dialogue with critics, you having to perceive the way that review will be perceived as you, as yourself presenting that about the filmmaker as him or herself. I mean, like, like it's just so like for me, it's so, so overwhelming. There's so many meta levels of 
discussion and presentation before you can even get to the thing, which is writing a review or making a piece of art or whatever it is. It's wild, man. I I, I don't really – I have no idea what's going on. That's why I sound so confused and no. rambly probably, but it's like I don't really know what to make of it. Yeah. And for so long, I tried to satirize it and explain it. And then at a certain point, I was like, if I'm honest about myself, I feel like a kid. I feel – this thing makes me feel confused and strange and worried and like I don't know what's going on and I'm just trying to feel my way through this and I'm nervous. Yeah. So that's why – this movie. Yeah. It was like it was the most honest way for me to explore this moment, which is with no authority. Like she's trying to exert control over her narrative. She's trying to she's trying to speak with authority. And it's so clear she doesn't know what she's talking about and she's reaching for it. Yeah. But all of us are. I mean, she's the CNN, everyone, everyone feels like they're trying to make a video about their life yeah. and, and and trying to speak with authority on it. Everyone seems like they're acting 13 on the internet. So if I was going to make a movie about the internet, I wanted to make it about the only people acting their own age. Hey, there's going to be more with Bo after the break. But first, a word from our friends at Martinis and Murder. Hey there, I'm John. And I'm Darren. And this is Martinis and Murder. A weekly podcast that rehashes crimes, investigates new information, and ponders theories you may have never even considered. And we do it all while drinking. Because frankly, that's how most things in life should be done, right? Of course. From murders you've seen on the news to remote crimes in areas of the world you've never even heard of. We're the place for mysterious murders and creepy crimes. So hit that subscribe button to make sure you get new episodes downloaded every week. Sit back, relax, and get ready for Martinis Martinis and Murder. Murder. Ooh, this is good, man. Imagine what it would be like to learn new recipes from Gordon Ramsay, or photography tips for Annie Leibovitz, or hey, learn about television writing from Shonda Rhimes. Now you can with Masterclass. Masterclass offers online classes taught by the best in the world. And each class is shot with cinematic production quality, and it offers on-demand lessons loaded with exclusive content that you're going to find only on Masterclass. You can choose from classes taught by over 35 masters, including the folks I just mentioned, but also Malcolm Gladwell on writing, Martin Scorsese on filmmaking, astronaut Chris Hadfield on space exploration, Steve Martin on comedy, and so many more. Plus, new classes are always being added. Whether you're pursuing your passion or developing your career, you're going to find a Masterclass for you. And Masterclass has been featured by the New York Times, Vanity Fair, and ESPN. If you want to look up and get a sense of what it's all about beyond what I'm saying right now. I think your interesting listeners can unlock access to every Masterclass for a year. Right now at masterclass.com slash interests, I-N-T-E-R-E-S-T. I've taken a look at some of these folks. I think you're going to want to do this. You'll gain unlimited access to over 35 world-class masters, all for one surprisingly low annual price. That's masterclass.com slash interest for unlimited access to Masterclass. Learn from the best in the world at masterclass.com slash interest. Well, I do want to talk a little bit about YouTube because YouTube is a part of the film or making videos for the online audience. And um, I guess I'm sort of wondering about the aesthetics of YouTube because mm. obviously Kayla does not have like a, a set or anything fancy and she's not like a super editing professional, but you can sort of see where like she's developing her voice in a way. And like, I'm wondering what, what you talked about in terms of the aesthetics of YouTube when you were doing this. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Um, the reference for the movie was watching videos of kids online talk about themselves, but sorting it by upload date, not relevancy. Cause when, when you search middle school advice by relevancy, you get, you know, 50 videos that have 
you know, 3 million views each. And those kids are, you know, doing three-point lighting and and quick editing, and they probably actually, like, have someone working for them that's putting their stuff together. And then the kids that I would watch that had, you know, 10 views and four, four subscribers, much rougher than that, and, you know, recording off of their computer laptop and, I mean, their computer laptop, their laptop webcam, and, and, you know, maybe in front of a bad curtain that they got at Crate and Barrel, which is, like, where we got the curtain that's behind her, that, like, is interfacing with her skin tone in totally the wrong way. Like, you should pick another color so you pop off that, you know, but she doesn't know any better. I mean, mostly the aesthetic for us was really recording it on a MacBook Air webcam. But the problem is when I recorded, like, I didn't realize the webcams record in 1080 now, and it, like, looked too good. So we actually (laughs) had to down-res it in in post because, in my mind, it's like, it's not just the raw file. It's maybe the streamed file, and she doesn't know how to upload the file, like, as well. So... Yeah, those are the more aesthetics for me, just the sort of the flat, sort of gross, visible lighting, and then the sort of digital block compression that happens in, in, you know, that sort of JPEG-y look, the sort of video JPEG look, which to me is can be very beautiful. Yeah. Um, And also just exists sort of in stark contrast to, for us, uh, you know, our 8K helium red camera. But at the end of the day, it is the same thing. That's what we're kind of saying is that, like, her webcam, actually, it's kind of the same exact thing as our camera. It's just that one looks so fake because it's, you know, at the equivalent of like 480p or 720p. Uh, but it's kind of the same. It's kind of – we're just – you add more pixels and all of a sudden this looks real. But our movie is also a captured image mm-hmm. that's pretending to be real life. Did you feel like you needed to downgrade the image to distinguish or did you want to get back to, is, was that sort of a subtle way of getting back to your own roots? Kind of, kind of. I think so too. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. That's what it meant to me was, uh, not 1080, something like 480 yeah. or 360. Or, I mean, I was reporting in 240, which is like ridiculous, <laughs> um, which is basically just like cubism. <laughs> so uh, when you were watching the videos of of the kids with the 10 uploads or whatever, like what were you learning about how they think about themselves, how they see the world? Well, I, I, you know, kids are a lot more self-aware than you remember them being or think they are, I think. But also like just the crazy negotiation they're doing in real time of so many things at once, which to me was infinitely more complex than what I had normally seen from young teen voiceovers, which were perfectly articulate kids going like, okay, I'm going to tell you how I went from being the queen of the school to the thing of the that or whatever. (laughs) As opposed to these kids, which were like, okay, I see who they're trying to be. I see them. I see, I can tell all like the references they have in their head for how they want to present themselves, which usually are successful YouTubers, which themselves are imitations of imitations of imitations. I can see them failing to be that. I can see them trying to close the gap. I can see them adjusting their physical appearance by making little, you know, eyes down two inches below the camera to where their actual image is. I can see them getting bored. Um, All in a second, you know, like in an instant, you're seeing all these things over and over again. And just watching those videos thinking if this were a performance in a movie, it would be incredible and complex and interesting. So that that's what I felt more than even learning anything, which is like, whoa, the, the entire chaos of what I you know, right now, spend, you know, 20 minutes trying to describe out loud and fail to, they communicate in just the way they express themselves, which is like, it's a diary. So it's a weird form of honesty, yet it's so performed, but like performed fake, but performed honesty is like, actually, I think the most honest thing nowadays, or the most true thing, the way you perform for the 
audience you hope is there mm. is like so true to me. So yeah, that's more than like understanding them. I just felt I felt seen by them. I felt like, whoa, you're you're communicating what I feel better than I ever could. I spent years making shows or stand-up shows and all this stuff trying to communicate what you're communicating just intuitively to me in, in a minute. You yeah. might not be totally aware of it, but that's not your job. When you think about the the visuals or the writing or the whatever of some of those kids who are doing this on extremely low budgets, like assuming they're listening to this, which probably yeah. they are, like uh, what's your advice to them? Like what well, what's the what's the single easiest way to make your your videos look better if <laughs> if you know you have five bucks? Oh, I don't know. You know, I don't think I would say for kids on the internet, like do what you want and don't because the, the, the bummer of YouTube to me is that like YouTube has for some reason, like invited the aesthetics and constraints of Hollywood onto themselves for no fucking reason. Like you don't need to be beholden to the aesthetic choices and, and institutions of Hollywood, which like for the most part, that lighting is designed for different cameras. So like, I think the lighting looks all like so overblown and, and bad. You feel like in a lot of stuff like, oh man, you're lighting the film and shooting digitally and it looks like a yoga commercial and everyone looks like crazy. But no, for, for the kids, I would just say like, do your own stuff. Don't worry about that. Like it's the time to just express and feel things out. And yeah, I want kids to feel more free. When we were young, when I was, 12 and 13, there was no YouTube and all the stuff. It's like, you just made things with your friends to make them. You weren't making it thinking, and then it could take off, like, which is a bummer. Like, just express yourself and find your voice and and fail and try to get better. Um, Do you think the fact that uh, a 15-year-old can become absurdly famous on YouTube, like, has hurt the medium, I guess? Because I think there's, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of interesting stuff on YouTube, but there's also this whole ocean of very samey stuff which is true of all art forms but you know what i mean yeah no i think what's well i think what's hurt youtube most is the corporate uh invasion of it so you go to the trending page of youtube it is music videos and late show clip late late night talk show clips and celebrity interviews and things like like corporately made viral content Mm -hmm. where a famous magazine gets a celebrity to like do some like eat a pickle or some stupid shit (laughs) so that's what's a bummer to me is like it's supposed to be the people's medium. It's supposed to be the thing where like without any deal or connections, you can be on the same level as everybody. And it's just the algorithms and the partnerships have have, have not made that the case. I, I got my start on YouTube. I don't think I would have been noticed now. I, I think I would have been buried by all the, uh, you know, mm-hmm. funny, meta, ironic, satirical corporate partnerships, you know, where it feels like, you know, it's some bacon burger that's doing like an ironic, like auto-tuned remix of something. It's like, shoot me in the head. <laughs> like truly, it's like, so that, and the kids, if there's any sameness to the kids' performance, it's I think it's only because they're they're having to catch up to their corporate overlords because that's what they're seeing is working on the internet hmm. um so yeah i hope the internet can let the kids through let let a new generation of content makers through it's exciting or even content makers is like a part of the corporate language to yeah. get kids to not be original yeah um yeah so that that's a bummer the, the, the youtube's a bummer to me yeah there's a lot of still good stuff in it but it like i i I didn't think it would be like this 10 years ago. Really? I thought, I, yeah, I thought it'd be way freer than this. Mm. <clears throat> I certainly didn't think, you know, 10 of the top 20 most subscribed channels on YouTube would be like NBC. Yeah. And you know what I mean? Like that, that, that kind of stinks. <laughs> that's a, uh, that's a bummer. Do you see places where you feel like that, that freedom still exists? If you scratch just below the surface of YouTube there, everyone's still there, you know, um, it's just 
YouTube used to like when I was up there, it was really like championing like unknown people that weren't seen and and trying to make new people and give them a platform. And I don't think it's really doing that now. And I don't I don't put that at the feet of the people working at YouTube or anything. It's just like it's where the money is. And what sucks is that like a 15-year-old girl in, you know, Topeka trying to get her little videos seen is competing with movie stars trying to, you know, on their press tours trying to make something interesting to promote their $300 million movie. So like that that's 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 really tough. Yeah. Um yeah. I encourage people to when they search things on YouTube sort it sort it by upload date. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Not relevancy and try to try to watch some videos that no one's looking at. Yeah. Um that's what I that's what I spend most of my time doing. Yeah. One of my favorite things was um uh someone who works at Vox Media. I don't remember the name, but they did a thing where they just searched for like uh vid and then the number, like things that mm-hmm. had been accidentally mm-hmm. uploaded and then mm-hmm. and it was just like all this wonderful like bizarre footage of American life that just you know, like, well, you know what you can do if you go to a Vimeo link when you go to Vimeo li- like Vimeo links are slash a number mm-hmm. and just change change the last two numbers mm-hmm. you mean like to change one to a five or a five, and you'll and you'll just it's literally truly random and I wish YouTube had a setting for that just random video but mm-hmm. that's not uh, lucrative so they don't want they don't, they don't want that you know they want people they want people, understandably, going to videos that have been approved to run ads on them, which for the most part are corporate and reliable. Yeah, you uh, had a tweet a, couple, like a week ago, <laughs> yeah, like yeah. an old video of yours was demonetized or something. Ago. <laughs> yeah. Tell me about that and experience. I did it. Well, yeah, it was just like I got an email which was like my, some video from 10 years have been has been deemed inappropriate for running ads on. And I was like – just in the nick of time, thank God you've saved it. And it's hilarious. It's like the kids that it was inappropriate to run ads for are now like twenty nine, and then they they monetized it again. But the problem is that's because I'm you know I have a bunch of Twitter followers and I tweeted and made a big stink about it. Like I'm not the person that needs my monetization kept on YouTube. The kids who that policy actually hurts are the kids that have no power to make a stink about it. So yeah. are there? But, are, you know, it's hard to advertise to. Do you have some? Favorite YouTubers still? Some people that you still really like to watch? Um, I love Bill Wirtz. Oh, yeah. He's great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's like a really cool, free sort of – He did um, the uh, entire history of the world in yeah. like 20 minutes or something like yeah. that. It's, it's wonderful. Um, but yeah, it really is just like truly random people. Yeah. Where it's like I'm watching some – some kid has a channel where he like loves crane games and he goes to like every Dave and Buster's and like – Mm-hmm. does the crane game and then like talks about all the prizes after. And it's like hilarious. And it's like very funny. And like, it's so strange to watch like the aesthetics of YouTube and YouTube red and these yeah. like famous YouTube where it's like it, the, the aesthetic feels like the Disney channel. It's the most lit produced stuff we've ever seen, which is the opposite of what YouTube actually is. When you scratch past the surface, you see that YouTube is like the biggest uh, snorkel to like unfiltered humanity. You know, you have a 95-year-old woman's birthday party filmed by her grandson. Like, it's like, if you scratch below the surface, it's the most beautiful human shit ever. Mm. Um, Mm. If you get past the surface of, uh, yeah, like, you know, hot pepper eating contests or whatever, like (laughs) all the other stuff is. (laughs) I'm going to recommend something to you and to our listeners. Uh, My my good friend, Lindsay Ellis, uh, did a documentary about why the Hobbit movies went wrong. And like, it starts out as just like straight criticism. And then it turns like she goes to New Zealand and like interviews people involved. Oh, oh, no, no, no. I've seen this. You've seen this. Okay. Yeah, no, no. This is incredible. Yes. With with them, about them not inviting the cast to the- Yeah. And and it turns into like- I've seen that. It turns into this like indictment of Hollywood, like bullying local governments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, no, that's incredible. I have seen that. So uh, check that out, everybody. Yeah, that's wild. <laughs> I do want to ask, you found really, like it can sometimes be so hard to find real kids. Mm-hmm. And you cast like Elsie Fisher's great. But all the kids in this movie, even the ones who are like more popular, feel like real mm. kids. Tell me about finding casting teenagers that seemed real. Yeah, it's like not hard if you actually do it. You know yeah. thing? Like, like I'm saying all the kids in the movie were kids from that school. It's hard to get people to sign off on the idea of real kids. But yeah, we just wanted kids of that age and re- kids that felt real. And yeah, exactly what you're saying, which I'm glad, is that like being popular isn't being like some perfect, you know, Disney Channel kid. It's like actually that age just being confident. Like if you're if you're slightly more confident, you're you have a lot more social standing. But uh yeah, we just wanted real real kids. So we we got them. I mean, it was just uh yeah, every 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 Saturday during pre-production, I would go up and I would meet with all the extras with you know hundred kids from just the town we were coming, we were filming in, coming in every day. I just have a conversation with them and and more than and more than even like it's not even about necessarily the look of kids. It, like it is about getting kids, giving kids permission to f- be themselves and be comfortable on camera and not feel like they have to be in a movie. And like I'm in a movie, and, you know? What I mean, like it's so weird that kids when you tell them to act, have like a version of being a kid in themselves that they, it's so funny to watch kids pretend to be kids in movies yeah. that they've seen when they just like, no, just, just be yourself. <laughs> like it's, it's okay to hiccup. It's okay to be wrong. It's like, because it's real kids from that area that don't really know. A lot of them have never been in a film before. There are like multiple <laughs> times in the movie where kids buzz the lens, but that's like hilarious to me. I'm saying where kids look into the lens and that's, you know, it's totally worth it for me. And actually, <laughs> kind of funny and actually to me contributes to the realism mm. that it's like what is happening right now yeah um <laughs> but yeah we just wanted real kids to be free well so often we are being filmed and don't even know it and then we're like oh shit somebody's taking a picture well, well exactly yeah. and that is but the other thing is that like it turns out that a, do- uh, a generation that self-documents is pretty comfortable on camera the great thing is is like they didn't give a shit about <laughs> it, it being a movie because they're like well we film each other all the time yeah we oh and what is this this is an indie film what yeah. is that <laughs> like they don't even you know what I mean? it's not like it's a bunch of like a24 diehards it's not like a bunch of kids like with like lobster blu-rays in their back pocket so like um that's what we were saying we were kind of going like come on over to our old dusty medium of independent <laughs> film and try it on so it was great they they were uh beautifully unintimidated they no. were legitimately bored a lot of the time like in the shooting drill like they are bored like they they want to go home they're like so tired of being in a movie which is exactly what we wanted uh, well tell me about finding uh your lead because Elsie has worked a lot. Like, I mean, she's, she's been acting for a long time, but also you found, you know, you found somebody who's really good at not being fake. You yeah. Know? Yeah. She'd actually, since she was young and she took a couple years off before the movie, cause she was just having a mis- miserable time as any sane person probably would being a young actor. Yeah. She just, uh, is willing to sort of bring everything about herself into a scene. And is just sort of able to do that in a way that I think, you know, is difficult for an actor of any age. Um, was that a tough process, casting that role? Or no, she was the second pretty- person in the room, okay, so. <laughs> which was crazy. But we saw 100 after her, yeah. you know, because mm-hmm. I had to convince myself that it was right. But I found her very early. I found a video of her online and felt like if, if, she, if her vibe is exactly what I sort of would want. Um, and then when she came in, it was just immediately alive. You know, I couldn't even hear the words when the other kids said it. When the other kids did the monologues, I didn't hear the words because it felt like every other kid felt like they were straining to be shy and she felt like she was straining to be confident, which is what the role is. 
She understood what shyness was, that shyness is not cowering in a corner. Shyness is trying to speak at every moment and not being able to. You know, every other kid felt like they were playing Kayla. She felt like she was playing the person Kayla wanted to be in order to navigate the world. And she just understood that. It wasn't like tricking her. It wasn't like, oh, I'm going to find this awkward girl and trick her into giving a performance. She understood what she was doing. She understood the layers of it. And Yeah, I've seen her be interviewed elsewhere, and she's like very – poised. Yeah, put together way. and yeah. enthusiastic yeah. and like, yeah. Um, but she also understands it, um, like personally in the way I think any good actor w- would have to understand what they're doing personally in order to portray it truthfully. And it's interesting you say that thing about pretending to be the person, you know, or, or the per- trying to be the person you want to be, because that's so much of our online selves in a lot of ways. Um, I do want to ask you about just very briefly, kind of as we head into the end, like you directed before this, a number of stand-up specials, your own, but other comedians mm. as well. And I'm wondering what did you learn about directing from doing a stand-up special? I'm, I'm fascinated by the direction of them because it feels to me when it's done well, it seems easy. And I know it's not easy, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting. It's not a director's medium. It's a comedian's medium, obviously. So your job is to just service the person on camera, which is a very good lesson to learn for film, just to service the on-camera person in any way you can. I mean, the thing is, it's really one look. You need to set one look that is dynamic and yet not distracting and also can be very versatile and looked at for an hour for a lot of from a lot of different angles. So that's good to like – it's good training for a film to get into a location and really be able to get everything you can out of it because, you know, you're trying to look for – a location in stand-up that is interesting from eight different angles. I mean, the stress of a special is really the entire production more than just necessarily the direction. It's like if any of this goes wrong, the budget doubles. Right. I mean, it's just it's one night. You have to get everything right from it, which is stressful. And there's also, you know, just just factors in it that are just very unique to what it is, which is audience lighting specifically lighting an audience how visible are they so that they register on camera and yet don't feel so seen that they don't want to laugh for me it's specials visually are it's a very low bar to clear to be better than the average one i mean i just think like most of them look insane to me and 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 they actually are because they are like they are lit for 80s cameras they're and they're being shot on you know, Alexa's or whatever, and and so overlit and way too much foot lighting. And there's a goddamn jib going around for no reason. It's like <laughs> someone telling a joke and the camera's like drifting around people's heads, um, which is insane to me. Well, it's, it's interesting you bring up the audience because I was in the audience for, uh, they were recording a, a Patton Oswalt special mm. once. And like, I, I felt myself laughing more inauthentically. Like mm, I thought course. the jokes were funny, mm. but I was laughing more than I would have. Yes, yeah, so like, you get, you get. I was like, am I part of am I part of the show in some yeah, way? Yes, exactly. And you feel you, you can feel when an audience is performing because they feel seen. Mm-hmm. I, I think the worst thing an audience can do is feel seen. So I do not like. I only like to backlight the crowds. Maybe a little spill off the stage, but like, I've been in tapings. And I did tapings like the Comedy Central presents from ten years ago, which I can talk about now because it's an entire different production now. <laughs> the room is just so lit. I mean, like every you're you're as lit in the crowd as you are on stage. So the laughs are big and there are applauses at every joke because they're being literally told to applaud whenever they feel like it. But it, it becomes really homogenous and, and it doesn't ever feel authentic. And to me, my favorite sort of stand-up specials and CDs, the old Steve Martin stuff, Richard Pryor, you'd hear like – I love hearing one person shriek over there and yeah. I love laughs being textured. And, and, and then there's also like 
sweetening of laughs that happen in post that you cannot believe. I mean, literally, like, I know of tapings where people bombed yeah. and then they edited in them killing. And the the impulse is to always pump laughs harder, all, you know, double laughs. And, and uh, I mean, like, we made Gerard Carmichael's special yeah. at HBO. Gerard is an experience to watch. And part of the experience of watching is, like, you do not know where he's going. And, like, he very rarely has... 90% of the audience on board with something. His stuff is divisive and you don't quite know what's happening or where he's going to go and when to laugh. And the danger and the texture of that is so part of the experience of watching him. And that was, you know, part of capturing him uh, was to to let that breathe. But it's it's so stressful. It's like you're saying that. It's like literally on the day when it's happening, it's like, Oh shoot! The first show ran a little long. It's not the second show. The people are being forced to wait twenty minutes standing in a hot hallway. That's going to affect the energy of the show that they're in. So it's like getting something live is um, is hard. This is what we're trying to do. Me and me and Gerard, and my producer Chris, are trying to like start a little production company just to make just to make live specials because like the the the, the way people do this stuff is they fight against that spontaneity that I'm talking about that can sink a show by overly controlling everything. But the spontaneity is the only reason to capture the show, that it's alive and it's happening in real time. Every stand-up special looks to me like Conan live from the Chicago theater. You know, like when the late night shows go on to others. And that those shows should be bright and yeah. produced and look slick. But like a stand-up show and, or a live music performance, it's not that. It's about someone wrestling a show out in real time in a room. So – our little vision that we've made for stand-up specials, we think like is very exportable and we want to bring cool directors in to do uh, stuff. But uh, what the fuck? Now, now I'm like selling myself? <laughs> the question was just like, <laughs> what did I learn? Um, it, it's its own thing though. It's, it, but it is a very exciting untapped yeah. thing, I think, especially when people are making 500 stand-up specials a, a year. There's like a definitely a different, slightly different way to do it. John Mulaney's, I think his looks really, really, really slick. Rory Scoville has done some really nice stuff. Yeah. There, there are people pushing against it. Well, we started out by kind of talking about this process of having your first movie out there. So that experience of like crossing over into the mm. mainstream. Yes, yes, yes. Has, uh, with this movie especially, has that changed how you feel or think about yourself in any way? <laughs> what a question. It's definitely weird to have felt like the outside you know, internet guy talking shit about the culture. Yeah. And now you get like slightly invited to the table. Um, but I mean, it was like a very small indie arty table, but that's cool. I was very intimidated by the world of film and yeah. it, it's been much kinder to me than I ever thought it would be. And not to open up a whole other conversation, but like the real thing I was most worried about was the way my movie would sort of integrate with the political moment, which I felt like, I thought it was – I thought it would integrate well, but I just wasn't sure about, you know, um, me being who I am. Mm. Not an internet person, but a, you know, big, tall, white dude mm. making a movie about a, a young woman. But I tried to approach it sensitively and it's been nice to feel like it's been accepted. We end every episode by uh, asking our guests some of the same questions. So I'm going to ask you some of those. And the first one is uh, who is the filmmaker – alive or dead, that you've learned the most from that you've never met? Mm, well, probably, I mean, all of them. I have <laughs> <laughs> really met any of them. You know what? I will say, I will say Paul Thomas Anderson. Okay. You know, because it's, no one wants to say him. I feel like <laughs> no one wants to say him because they think they sound like a loser. I think he's just the best. What's your favorite of his? Probably the master. 
Yeah. I've probably seen that one the most. I want to say that Paul Thomas Anderson is a popular answer to that question. I never get the same favorite movie though, which I think is an indication. Oh, yeah. You're the first one to say the master. Oh, really? yeah. It's, it's a punch drunk love. I love I yeah. mean, punch drunk love. There'll be by the master is like my, definitely my favorite three run movie. Whether it's a, a movie you saw or a TV show, you watched a book, you read something. What's like the last pop culture thing that you did. And what did you think of it? That I have consumed. Yeah. I'm halfway through su- succession. Okay. Yeah. I'm liking it. Yeah. Lincoln and the Bardo. Yeah. I've, I read that again recently. Mm. That's, uh, I love George Saunders. Yeah. Uh, and finally, as, as a comedian, what is a joke somebody else told that you're just like really in awe of that? Like you almost wish you could have told it even if it didn't, wouldn't have made sense for you to tell it. Uh, I wouldn't have. Uh, <laughs> this is uh, it's a Dan Mintz joke. Is mm. his name Dan Mintz? That's right. Yeah. Yes, Dan Mintz. This is the hardest I've ever laughed watching stand up when I was I was in the theater live. I think it was BJ Novak and Friends at the New York Comedy Festival like ten years ago. Sure. And it was um I believe in the philosophy that you should use every part of the animal when you kill it. Yeah. For example, I killed a polar bear the other day and I used the jaw of the polar bear to make a knife with and the rest of the polar bear to have sex with. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if the cultural moment is soured on that. Are we not allowed to go after like uh, uh, sex with polar bears? But I, I mean, that was just—it was just so shocking and surprising to me. And if you've watched Dan Mintz, his his delivery is so good. Yeah, I, I feel because it's like well, I'm not going to do an impression, but it's very uh, yeah. He well, he does a voice on Bob's Burgers. Yes, yes, so yes. people will know him as the voice from there. Well, thank you so much for ending the podcast in that fashion. <laughs> Bo Burnham, thank, thank you. I appreciate joining. the time. Thank you. I realize that this is a universal thing now, but I am so glad we didn't have the internet when I was in the eighth grade. I just missed it, like just by the skin of my teeth. But I'll tell you this, here's a secret. If you know where to look, you can find reviews I wrote of the X-Files when I was like 15 and they're so bad. I'm not going to tell you where they are, but maybe you can find them. And uh, and then you can embarrass me with them on Twitter. And I am, of course, Todd Vanderwerf, the host and executive producer of I Think You're Interesting. The producer of the show is Bridget Armstrong. The executive producer of audio at Vox Media is Nishak Kurwa. Our sound designer is Miles Yule. Our logo design is thanks to Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. Our production manager is Alex Ulreich. Our production coordinator is Carrie Clements. Our studio is the Rebel Talk Network studio here in Los Angeles. And our recording engineer is Will Broughton. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you happen to find your podcasts. It really helps us get the word out about the show and continue to get great guests. You can also email me, Todd at Vox.com. You can email the whole show, ityi.podcast at Vox.com, itye.podcast at Vox.com. And please feel free to tweet at me if you found my embarrassing X-Files reviews at TVOTI to Vody. And please, folks, remember to subscribe to our friends at Martinis and Murder. We're going to be back next week with more conversations with interesting people from the world of arts and entertainment, media and culture. And until then, I can't help it. I do like watching late night talk show clips on YouTube. It's, it's a disease. I'm sorry.